Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And last week, Dominique, you were teasing us with some, uh, just some really powerful and wonderful information that Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz shared with us in one of the webinars that we did with him on the stimulus control quadrants. So I think that needs a little expanding upon. So would you like to jump in and add to what we were talking about last week? Sure. So just as a reminder, so this is a webinar that we recorded um, in July 2018, still in our Equiosity store, if you want to go check it out. And it certainly was one of my favorite uh, webinars because we discussed this idea of quadrant of stimulus control. And so to give a little sneak peek, so he looks at the antecedent behavior consequence unit, and he describes how learning is affected depending on which part of the unit you, you change. So are you changing the antecedents? Are you changing the behavior, meaning raising criteria? Or are you changing the consequences? So the, um, and it, it all starts making a lot of sense when you look at it from the perspective of the animal. What has changed and what is being kept constant. So I'll go through the four quadrants to just to give you a little bit of a taste of it. Okay. The first quadrants is what we would normally call practice. We're not changing any of the three elements. So the antecedents are the same, the behavior is the same, and the consequence is the same. So let's, let's do an example. You present a target to your horse, your horse touches the target, you give him a piece of carrot, and then you present the target again, he touches it again, etc., etc. So you're practicing targeting. Antecedents the same, presentation of the target, behavior's the same, he touches it, and the consequence is the same, he gets a carrot. So that's the first quadrants, we'll call it practice. The second quadrants is what a lot of people call training. It is training, but it's not the favorite way of Jesus to train. So you've been doing targeting with your horse. Now you've decided that you want to teach the concept, let's say, of duration, and you will use the target to do that. So now you want to train duration on the target. So the antecedent is the same as before. You present the target. The behavior will not be the same because you want to raise criteria. You want him to stay on the target and the consequence is the same. So this is what Jesus calls fighting with extinction, meaning that all the environmental cues are cueing the very behavior you're trying to replace with something new because you have all the same antecedents as before, right, right. but in your head, the horse needs to change its behavior, but the horse doesn't know that. And so right, this right. will generate a lot of frustration and even sometimes aggression because there's no reason for the horse to present or learn a new behavior. Yeah, 
you stupid human, I'm doing what you've been I am. reinforcing me for right along. Exactly. And the frustration will be captured in the learning too. Yes. Which is something you don't like. So a better way to train, says Jesus, is the third quadrant, which is there's a little change, the antecedent, there's a little change in the environment. The behavior changes too, because you want to raise criteria and the consequence is the same. So something that tells the animal that, you know, there's, there's something different about this environment today that will produce a variation in behavior. And so you, this is when we say we want to set up the environment to facilitate the behavior, to make it more likely to happen. So in those conditions, there might be a little bit of extinction, but not so much. So the changes in the environment could be you change your position, you bring a new prop. I think in this case, in the targeting, that would be easy to do. You bring a new kind of target, different target. Yes. You have a new posture. And he says too, even if you reinforce uh, in those conditions, the learning will happen really fast. But if you want to even maximize this, you can change the reinforcer for something more valuable and that will accelerate the learning. But anyway, so better way to train a little change in the environment to signal to the animal that a behavior change will be reinforced, behavior changes and the consequence is the same. And the fourth one is what we generally call proofing or generalization. So the antecedent changes, the behavior is the same, and the consequence is the same. So you've taught your horse to target this orange target, let's say. Now you want him to target your closed hand. You want him to start to generalize that, you know, all kinds of target can be targeted. Or I'll give you another example, which is also important when it's not desirable. So if you want your hand to become a cue for something, but then you keep moving your hand around during training, <laughs> well, good luck, because what you have done is proofing. You know, the behavior stays the same while the stimulus changes. That's exactly what we do when we want to prove or generalize a behavior. So antecedent changes, behavior is the same, consequence is the same. So the idea is that the, the animal sees a discrepancy and he looks at what changes and what remains constant. And if we understand and take advantage of those discrepancies, so we, we think, okay, I'm going to create a little discrepancy by changing the environment, or I'm going to create a little discrepancy by changing the reinforcement. Then you will be more aware of what you're doing. Am I proofing? Am I training? Am I just practicing? For me, it was, I thought it was brilliant. It's an important switch in our thinking because in the first few rounds of clicker training, in the early days of clicker training, what we were looking at so very much were the consequences because the real learning at that stage was, was that consequences drive behavior. Yep. The dog does not sit because you said sit. The dog sits when you say sit because you gave him hot dogs in the past. And so sit becomes a predictor of hot dogs. And then 
And so what we wanted to look at were the consequences. But in looking at the consequences and really focusing on the consequences, we forgot that the antecedents are an important part of that. And, and actually, a consequence is an antecedent for the next behavior. So, you know, so it gets, you know, it gets sort of head spinning very fast. And, and so we needed to bring things back into balance a bit and say, don't forget the environment because <laughs> yeah. it's really important. And we had, we've, we've had some great discussions about that in some of our previous podcasts. I mean, the podcasts that we did with Michaela Hempen with the cribbing, that was a great example of that. So in, in the research that project that she was doing on is cribbing an operant behavior? It can, is it something that we can manipulate, control, influence in some way? And the answer was in that experiment that Michaela changed the environment. The source that she was working with lived in a very impoverished environment. It was a boarding barn where the horse had a stall and a small turnout paddock. And that was her world. And Michaela, this was not her horse at that time. Blondie now is and is living a much more enriched and lovely life. In this impoverished environment, there wasn't another stall, a paddock. There wasn't another place that where she could set up the training. She had to work her in this mayor's stall. So what she did is she hung up a shower curtain in the corner of her stall. So there were conditions in which uh, that were just normal conditions and the mayor cribbed, okay, she's cribbing. And then there were the non-cribbing conditions and those occurred when the shower curtain was hanging in the horse's stall. And gradually the shower curtain was removed, strip by cut, strip by cut, strip, until the non-cribbing conditions now match the environment, the previous environment, and Blondie continued to not crib, which was pretty astounding. I mean, there was the, there was astounding video showing this uh, the baseline of Blondie cribbing away like mad, mm-hmm. and then well, she was cribbing every bite she took of him. Yeah, yeah, could not just when she was eating her hay, it was. Take a take a bite, crib, 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 crib. Take another bite, crib, 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 crib. It was really tough to watch. And then she was just able to eat her hay with no cribbing. Pretty astounding. Yes. So that change of the environment, well, that was a great example of change the environment instead of fighting extinction. And I, I think that's a really, that expression, don't fight extinction, and really understanding what that means, that you're trying to change a behavior, but you're doing it where the expectation is that I'm going to paw, paw, paw in the cross ties. When you put bring me out into the barn aisle, put me on the cross ties, the behavior that that triggers is pawing. Yeah. And so it, you want your horse to stand still and not paw. There's a lot of tension around that because you're in a boarding barn and the barn owner has has made it very clear that your horse pawing is not making them happy. So you're you're just 
fighting extinction in that situation. So change the environment. Yeah. So in, in the webinar, at the end of the webinar, Susan Friedman, who was an attendee, we were very lucky because she joined the discussion and she added her way of articulating all this. And she said, you know, we're biologically prepared to look out for any signals that tell us what to do to control outcomes. And so the signals become important. The environment becomes important because it gets attached to the behavior reinforcer part of the unit. And that's how the A touches the C, she said. So if there's no signal, we just persist in what we've been doing. But if there is a stimulus change, then we ask ourselves, ooh, this may be a signal that perhaps I need to change my behavior in order to control the outcome. Yes. And so the question becomes, you know, what does that look like? How do I do that? And it could be, as you said, as simple as changing the orientation of your body. Yeah, which is huge. Yes, yes. You know, you don't need to do something big. Yeah, so body posture certainly, right. our body language is way up there. Right. So if I'm in standing in one orientation asking for the grown-ups are talking, please don't interrupt, Then and now I want head lowering, well, I'm going to shift slightly in my position. And that just makes it easier for the horse to recognize that I'm looking for something different. So, and it doesn't have to be a big shift. Oh, no. You... Well, maybe we should refer people to our Clever Hands episode. You know, this horse who would, um, people thought could count, but he, yeah. he could do actually. This was in um, last century, and he was a sensation in Europe because people thought this horse was really clever. It was in Germany, I think. And yeah. so, in the end, after, you know, having generated a lot of, uh, interest from even the scientific community and people made sure it wasn't a scam and how was this working and how did this horse know how to calculate well in the end what they realized was that if the if if no one in front of the horse knew the answer this horse could not count but if there was one person who knew the answer in the audience this horse knew how to read this person to find the right answer. Yes. Their capacity to read our body language is very, very yes. uh, impressive. And cues and behavior evolve together. So cues evolve out of the shaping process. And, and our job is to become aware of those subtle uh, hints, clues, that our learner is picking up on that helps him to get to his reinforcement faster. And if I want to make things really easy for my learner, then I want to make those hints and clues pretty obvious. You know, I'm not trying to be sneaky and say, oh, you know, I'm going to hide these clues and make them really hard for you to spot, like some uh, party game. Can you spot the five things that are different in this room? And, I've, and I'm making them as sneaky and subtle as I possibly can. That's not the way, especially not with a new learner. That's not how I play the game. I want to make the differences easy to spot. Yeah. 
and I want to make them easy to spot for both of us because our horses are really good at spotting the differences. We're but, not, <laughs> but we're not, we're not always that good. So, so I want to as soon as I start to have a glimmer of a hint of what my horse is paying attention to mm. that's helping him to make these distinctions, I'm going to latch hold of that, as it were, and exaggerate it, make it more obvious. And then I can fade it to make it so subtle that unless you're really tuned in, you won't notice the clues and the cues, whatever we want to call them. But my horse and I will. So I can make them super subtle when it's appropriate, or I can make them very clear and obvious when it's appropriate. You know, it's that understanding that I need in some way to make these distinctions really clear. And that's why, you know, in the six foundation lessons, we have the targeting and backing. Backing, targeting your body language is drawing a horse forward. Generally, when you start out, you're having the horse come towards a target. Mm-hmm. And then when you turn into the horse with your body orientation, it's clear that you're asking him to back. So you're, you're, you have this black and white distinction of I'm asking you to go forward is a completely different body orientation from the one that you use when you're asking the horse to back up. And, and so those, those can be differences. You can have, make other distinctions. Uh, you can change the location. Yeah, absolutely. Location can be, I mean, let's say the example we were giving about the big noise while you were in the arena and you, you don't want this big noise to be attached to the arena and to the grown-ups are talking. And so you just change location, meaning just go in the aisle you know, in the barn aisle and then work your way back to the arena. So change of location doesn't have to be, you don't have to move out of your boarding uh, place. You can choose other locations or even, you know, change something in the location. Again, you know, he's a sense of humor. He said, well, put a pinata (laughs) at the top of the arena. Yeah. Or paint it a different color, or I mean right. the shower curtain certainly. I mean, who you would think? Well, I'm in the bar, I'm in the stall. What can I, you know? What can I change? I do. What can right. I change? Well, hang a curtain, a shower curtain is yeah. pretty creative, but that's right. That's right. And it's a change in the environment that is very noticeable. Yes, and in this case, it was also functional because it also blocked access to one of the horse's cribbing surfaces, which is why she chose a shower curtain. Which, was, which probably would be more in the category of chain or props, you know. To, right. But then there, you can also have, uh, you're not always trying to uh, avoid or fix something no. that's gone well, wrong. Sometimes you so just raise criteria. This is why it was called brace criteria, not right. foundation, because sometimes you're trying to raise criteria, but because you've been reinforcing past criteria before, the, the horse is confused. So yeah, it can be also during shaping that you want to signal, okay, now we're changing something. So you can have different stations. So if I set up a circle of cones and maybe I'll have a mat, have mats set out next to the cone. So on the mat that's next to the red cone, I might do head lowering. The mat that's next to the blue cone, I might do uh, simple targeting. The mat that's next to the yellow cone, I'll work on grown-ups. The mat that's next to the 
a purple cone. I might work on picking up your feet. So, you know, the different stations, it keeps it interesting for the horse. And it also is very clear that, you know, in this location, expect grown-ups. In this location, expect head lowering. Well, the, the other thing too, let's say something did happen, you know, in, in the arena, there was a dog that barked, and now the horse doesn't want to go in the arena anymore. But if you put the cones, now it's not about the dog barking in the arena. It's about a task to be done around the cones. It's not the same arena anymore. When the right. cones are there, it's safe. Yes. Well, get the dog out of there, but, you know, put the cones and that's a change in the environment too. Now we're yep. doing a task around cones. And you remember when, when I first started to work with uh, your horses at the retirement farm, what did I do with the arena? I had you build a classroom for me. That's right. You changed it. And then that's a huge change of the Big environment. Change. Yeah. So in one corner of the arena, you set up the panels that you would that you used to build stalls, yeah. and that became just a, a really nice classroom size space. And for the horses, particularly for horses that had worked in that arena at other times, it's really a huge signal that says this is different. Yeah. And it worked. Yeah, it really works. So but it's it's a great tool because it opens up, you know, when you're stuck, or even when you try to shape you, you're not progressing the way you want. I think being aware of this, that you need to signal to the animal what's coming up, you know, so that things are clear and predictable and okay, now we're doing something else. So and to answer our listeners' questions from last week, you know, in emergency situations, well, get a Spider-Man costume. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow I think in the middle of evacuating from a fire. Now, where did we put that Spider-Man costume? Well, I'll tell you, this this is a big change in the environment. Yeah. I mean, for sure. It's not the kind of conditions that you will have the rest of the time. So... I don't know, you know, I mean, you would have to look at each and every situation. Did the horse learn anything there? What did he learn? I think it's going to be really fascinating to hear from some of the people who have lived through this, whether it's California fires, those horrific fires last year in Australia. What is the long-term fallout from having the the fire experience i had uh, another person email me they had to she had to leave her horse behind mm. which i just can't I, the the heartbreak of that and the fire the fire crews opened his pasture gate so he could get out Did and him? they found him unhurt oh. at a neighbor's uh, a property and he had to jump two five-foot fences to get away from the fires. And But he, he outran the fires. Wow. I know. And you just, I mean, it's just all those all those stories that you hear, like the, what was it, the homeward bound, or, you know, the, the, the dogs and the cat that, that got separated from their family and took like six, eight months to walk across country until they found their family again. All these stories that you you know that that come back to you with just these amazing, and then of course you feel really heartsick for the people who lost yeah. family, p- 
pets and the all the horses and other animals that couldn't be evacuated. But when you have individuals like that, what is the emotional impact? And it could it can surprise you because I yeah. I always go back to an experience that happened and this was this was e- eons ago way before clicker training i was boarding at a big hunter jumper barn and a trailer one of those big show barn trailers that had a lot of horses on it flipped over and terrible trailer in accident and the fire crews had to come and cut the top off the trailer to get the horses out and so you had horses lying on top of one another it was but they all survived and the owner of the stable where I was boarding offered shelter to the owners of, of these horses. So they were there overnight and, uh, and they were there until another transport could be found that could take them away. Every one of those horses walked back on the trailer without any problem whatsoever. I'm pretty sure that you talked about this, we in, did. this in this webinar. Oh, we did. Huh. Yeah. And so he just said, again, in order for learning to happen, it needs to be attached to the environment. And so, and, and the response will include the emotional state. But in this case, because there was like no predictor that we were going to tip over while they may have not learned anything, you know, they, they, you know, and I don't remember if it's in this webinar that we talked about the rat and the alcohol in the soul. Oh, yes. That was another one, but uh, basically, I hope I can remember. It was with vodka. Yeah, they, because yeah. apparently the rat hate. They don't, they don't like alcohol, but they can't smell the, the they can't smell the vodka. Yeah, and so when... Um, I think they were doing the behavior between two stations, maybe. Yeah. It's not crystal clear, but in a nutshell, the idea was that they would give them little shots of alcohol with a syringe. Well, not shots. So, because that sounds like, that sounds like they're giving them uh, a medical shot. Yes. So they would hold a syringe out. A syringe, yeah. And the syringe usually had something that the rats liked. And, and then some alco- some applesauce and then some alcohol. But there was nothing to let the rat know that there would be alcohol. And so in the beginning, the rat were like, huh? What was that? They didn't like it. But they continued to do whatever they were doing because they, they hadn't learned about the alcohol yet. Uh, but eventually what they did was they put something out to signal that there would be alcohol and then the the rat behaved in a way that they would avoid the alcohol but until there was a predictor that there was an alcohol they kept going because they 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 didn't learn you know they couldn't learn because it couldn't be attached to anything i suppose eventually you know something would have happened but but I don't think this I, I don't remember if this rat experiment is in there but I'm pretty sure that the the example you just gave of the trailer was in that uh, yeah. July 29 2018 seminar we did with Hazel because it, it is fascinating because you would think that something that an experience like that would 
leave you so traumatized that you would never, that the horse would never load again. And yet there they were loading. So there, there has to be an explanation for that. And, and the same thing with the fires of, yeah, there's no, what is, what is going to be the emotional fallout of those horses that have survived these just, just, yeah, will they recognize something as, oh, yeah. this is, but, you know, to give a more, um, like, uh, everyday example, let's say this is time for dewarming, you bring a bucket with a syringe, all the elements are there for learning to happen because, you know, there's an, there's an environment change. Yeah. I mean, you restrain the horse, the bucket is right there next to you. Uh, the horse lifts his head to try to avoid the syringe and then something bad happens. Um, so the consequence changes also. So it's, it's all that quadrants where, you know, you have the perfect conditions to learn. It's interesting. I think it's a, it's a great insight. This yes. Quadrant of yes. Control. Well, it certainly gives people food for thought, you know, as, as you're training through the, over the next few days, particularly if there's something that someone is just puzzling over, struggling with in terms of how do I make progress teaching this particular skill or, or I'm struggling to get my horse to pick up his feet so I can clean them, that kind of thing, to, to really think about how could I use the, this idea of change the environment. So instead of fighting extinction, what could I it? do? Yeah. yeah, what could I do? And it's just, it's great food for thought. Yeah. Great food for thought. So check it out. It's a yep. nice store. Yes. In last week's episode, we announced that we're offering a discount on all the webinars we have in the Equosity.com store. Our guests have been three superstars in the clicker training community. Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz, Dr. Susan Friedman, and Ken Ramirez. So during October, we're offering a discount of 25% off the regular webinar price. So this is a great time to indulge. This offer runs through October 31, 2020. I suspect many of you will welcome a distraction during the final days of the election season. And what better distraction could there be than to listen to one of these webinars? Last week's episode was prompted by a question from someone who had to escape with her horses from a fire zone by walking them five miles to an evacuation center. It was just a terrifying situation. I, I just cannot imagine how horrific that must have been for her. And afterwards, she sent us a question about situations where you can't give choice. And that launched us into this conversation about Jesus's stimulus control quadrants. I have to say it's been hard to be on this side of the continent and to not be able to help more directly in what sounds like a just horrific situation for everyone who has been caught up in the fire zones. So for this month, in addition to the discount that you get on the webinars, we're going to be donating a portion of the proceeds to groups that have been involved in 
helping with the animals that have needed to be evacuated. Several of my friends who are volunteering with these efforts sent me some resources. I know I'm not alone in wanting to help, so I'm going to post links to these groups in the show notes. Go to equosity.com to find them. If I rattle off a long list of links here, I know you won't remember them, but I will list them all in the show notes. I also know that there were horrible fires in Oregon, Washington, and now sadly Colorado. I haven't included any links for groups in these areas. This list will get you started and perhaps give you ideas for finding groups in these other locations. Top of the list came this suggestion from a friend who sent me a long list of groups that had been helping with the evacuations. She said, I think the best way to help in Northern California may be to ask people to support the amazing UC Davis, who has responded across many of the worst fires with veterinary teams that have been offering telemedicine and out in the field organizing local vets to provide superior support on the ground and in the evacuation centers. So the link to the UC Davis veterinary is in the show notes. And there's also a link to their wildlife disaster network. If you're in any of the affected areas, she also suggested reaching out to the feed stores. Many of them have been accepting donations so they can provide feed for the disaster victims. And if you've listened to my other podcast, Horses for Future, that's the podcast that looks at what horse people can do for the climate change crisis, you will have met Sarah Nichols. Sarah lives in Australia, and they're currently preparing for their upcoming fire season. We all remember just what a horrific disaster they had last year. So I'm sure there are going to be many people who are just dreading, dreading this upcoming season. She recently did a webinar on what to do to prepare your horse for fire emergencies, where she brought in experts that can really help with disaster preparation. She sent me a list of great articles and podcasts, which I have also included in the show notes. They are good reminders for all of us. The worry now is that people won't keep up their evacuation plans and their preparation. That's especially a concern when it comes to trailering. Many of my clients who live in the fire zones or in areas that can be hard hit by hurricanes have realized that they need to teach their horses to be handled by strangers who probably have no clue about clicker trading. Their horses need to load easily, no matter what. And that's all part of emergency preparation. So do please visit equosity.com for these many links and references. And while you're there, pop into the Equosity store to check out the webinars. Remember the 25% off promotion runs until the end of the month. Enjoy and stay safe.